Uh, good morning. If you could uh, leave your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 7, verse 8. Uh, usually we, we're doing an occasional series through Exodus. Usually uh, I work through the text sort of verse by verse, but obviously there's too much this morning, so we're just going to follow uh, the important threads through. But let me uh, pray first. Father, in accordance with your purpose for the Exodus and the book of Exodus, we pray that you would cause us uh, to know in a greater way this morning uh, the meaning of the name Yahweh and your reputation and character, particularly as it's ultimately expressed in your glorious Son. Uh, We ask this in Jesus' name. About a hundred years ago, a scientific debate was raging Uh, concerning the size of the universe. The theory at the time was that the universe was pretty much just what we know as the Milky Way galaxy and it was a very static sort of small place with a defined boundary. But a guy called Hubble uh, opposed this theory and said that the universe was a huge and still expanding uh, place. It was vast beyond our comprehension. So a rivalry developed between Hubble and one of the main defenders of a small static universe. Hubble found decisive evidence that the universe was expanding, irrefutable to all scientists. And he sent a copy of his results to this other guy, This other guy ended up saying, this letter has shattered my universe. And what he meant by that, of course, is not just that he was wrong, but that he'd invested his life in an absolutely pointless theory that was fundamentally misguided. It meant, you have turned my world on its head. I spent my life pursuing something that was a waste of time. And this is pretty much for all people, becoming a Christian can be like this, or fundamentally changing our worldview can be like this. We just get to the point where our assumptions, how we thought the universe worked, how we thought life was, becomes fundamentally shattered. And the same happened at the time of the Exodus. In fact, the purpose of the book of Exodus was to shatter people's universe. Because at the time, it was Pharaoh was considered a god. He had control over the Nile and the annual flood that brought fertility and crops. That various other gods controlled dis- different aspects of human life. And God was about to shatter people's universe. Now, there's nothing particularly complicated about these chapters. What we've seen in Exodus so far is that God's people are enslaved in Egypt, whereas God's purpose for them is to be living under his rule in the promised land where they can multiply and thrive and be blessed by him. But Pharaoh has put himself in direct opposition to God by trying to stop this plan. 
Pharaoh wants to reduce the numbers of Israel, even by throwing babies into the Nile. He wants to keep them in Egypt as slaves, and he wants to rule them, not Yahweh. So Pharaoh, in his opposition to Yahweh, now has ten plagues poured down upon him and Egypt. And these chapters are organised in three sets of three, where the final plague, of course, is the standout, which we'll look at separately next time, uh, the Passover, the the killing of God's firstborn. Because remember, God has already said to Pharaoh, if you continue to enslave my firstborn son, then your firstborn sons will die. So what we're going to do now, though, is highlight some of the themes that uh, flow through Exodus, but particularly as they intensify in this account of these plagues. And the first basic principle is, well, who actually controls creation? And that's a question today too, isn't it? Who is there order in this universe? Does someone control it? Is our life just a random waste of time? Well, we've seen previously that Pharaoh was seeking to stop God achieving his purposes for creation, which will now be particularly expressed through Abraham's descendants. He tried to stop them being fruitful and multiplying, which, remember, was God's blessing on all of humanity in chapter 1. But that plan failed, and his own daughter, in mockery of Pharaoh... (laughs) ended up bringing up and raising the one that would deliver them. But they were still in Egypt and not the promised land or the holy place. This is to become like a new Eden, a new place where man and God will live together. We also need to remember that Pharaoh, as I said previously, was considered a god. He was the one held responsible for keeping Egypt ordered, the one who controlled the annual flow of the Nile, apparently, which brought life to Egypt. So this contest between Pharaoh and Yahweh will determine who really controls creation, who really governs this place and rules it. And we can see an example of this. So if you look at chapter 8, verse 3, And while you're doing that, let me read from Genesis chapter 1, verses 20 to 23, and you'll see some important links. Uh, Genesis 1 says, And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And what is, uh, uh, then it goes on, and God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters in the seas, let the birds multiply on the earth. And what does chapter 8, verse 3 of Exodus say? The Nile will swarm with frogs, they shall come up on your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants, and your people, and so on. See, these words are the same. This is copying from Genesis chapter 1. 
In Genesis 1, God is filling his good creation with teams or swarms of living things. In Exodus 8, he is causing swarms or teams of frogs to plague Egypt. This is like an act of anti-creation. The purpose of creation was, was to make a habitable place for humanity to live with God and just as apparently it's Pharaoh's job to maintain Egypt as a habitable place. Well, who controls Egypt? Well, it's clearly not Pharaoh, is it? Because he can't stop all these frogs from plaguing his country. In fact, God is here causing them to make Egypt an unbearable place, an uninhabitable place. It's it's Yahweh who controls creation. And in Exodus 12.12, which we'll look at another time, we see an important expression that these judgments, these plagues, are also a judgment on all the gods of Egypt, all the idolatry of Egypt. Yahweh will demonstrate that idols are powerless inventions of the corrupt human imagination and have no real power. So Yahweh saying to Pharaoh, if you think you can oppose my purposes for creation, let me show you what uncreation looks like. Let me show you what disorder looks like. Let me clearly demonstrate that you do not govern creation at all. And of course, this is related to another important theme in Exodus. In chapter 8, verse 10, it's that Yahweh might be known. God has revealed himself to Israel as Yahweh, as I am. And he's about to fill that name with substance and character by his actions in Egypt. Because we need to remember, don't we, Pharaoh's already asked the question back in chapter 5, well, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? I do not know Yahweh. Well, he's about to find out. And these ideas can also be seen in the conflict between Moses and the magicians of Egypt. See, what we see here are that Pharaoh's priests or magicians or sorcerers could do a certain amount that Moses and Aaron were enabled to do by God. See, Moses and Aaron have been called by Yahweh to minister his authority and power and the magicians are the equivalent to Pharaoh. So in chapter 7, verses 10 to 12, we read that the magicians could cause their staffs to become snakes. But in, of course, what happened is their staffs became swallowed up by Aaron's. We see in 7.22 that they could cause waters of the Nile to turn to, to blood. They could mimic these judgments or plagues. Chapter 8, verse 7, they could cause frogs to come. But as we go on, They can't keep up. (laughs) So in chapter 8.18, they couldn't produce gnats. Then in chapter 9, verse 11, they couldn't even appear before Moses anymore because they were covered in boils and sores. 
that had afflicted everyone else. So it says, uh, chapter 8, verse 11, And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. And at one point in our reading they said, This is the finger of God. But what we must notice here, what is incredibly ironic here, if not funny, is that all that these sorcerers can do is bring more judgment on Egypt. (laughs) They can add more blood, they can bring more frogs. If their gods are real, and they're real, turn aside the judgment of the true and living God. Defeat Yahweh. We've seen that God is acting over creation in reverse. In Genesis 1, he brought order to an uninhabitable place. Now he's bringing disorder to creation as a means of judgment. If these priests of Pharaoh are so good, why don't they restore order? Instead of bringing more disorder. If our culture is so good, why don't we restore order to creation and bring peace to all mankind? See, if people are as truly powerful and great as they think, demonstrate it. Recreate Eden. See, Western culture in a way does the same thing. We claim with all our technology and education, we will restore order to creation. We will conquer all problems without God. But like Adam and Pharaoh, governments set themselves up as rulers in opposition to God. By rejecting God's rule, we go against his purposes for creation. And so on the whole, when we look at our world now, it's no better a place than when Pharaoh ruled. There's just the same result. There's just more disorder. Our greater technology has produced greater capacity for uncreation. It's not that technology is bad. Technology is great. It's just that God is opposed and his rule disputed. See, we can now kill 20 times more people because we have AK-47s instead of spears. If the rulers of this world are so great, then restore order to creation. There will be a new creation. There will be a restored order which is a big theme in Exodus because it's very important that people understand that there is hope of a new Garden of Eden. Initially, this new creation can be seen in temporary ways such as the tabernacle and the promised land and where Moses is a mediator in some way of restoring some sort of order to creation. But of course, what we see now 
is that Jesus is the one greater than Moses who ultimately restores order to creation. And we know he does that because he's passed through death and been raised from the dead. He is the one that's triumphed over the disorder that human sinfulness has brought to this world. Everyone wants order brought back to creation. It's just most people reject the one through whom it can happen. After Jesus calmed the storm in Mark 4, the disciples rightly asked the question, who the hell is this man? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Another important theme is that one that we have Pharaoh's strong heart or hard heart versus God's strong hand. And we all know the outcome. God has a strong hand because he's about to act. He's about to do stuff. And Pharaoh has a strong heart, usually translated hard heart, but important to note it's the same word. So we see in some places that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. God strengthens Pharaoh's heart to oppose him. It says in other places that his heart is hardened and it says in other places he hardens or strengthens his own heart against God. Well, we've already seen in the Bible that this is a way of saying that both these things are true. At one level, Pharaoh is responsible for his actions in rejecting Yahweh's commands through Moses, as all people are responsible for their moral, spiritual decisions in life. But on the other hand, Pharaoh's sin or strength of heart is God's determined plan so that he can expose his glory. As Paul reminds us in Romans 9, God determined and raised up Pharaoh to do this very thing so that he could display his glory to the objects of his mercy. It goes with all our sins as well. We're totally responsible for our actions. All our moral, spiritual decisions are ours. But God will achieve his determined purpose and plan. Human sin will never thwart God's plan. Frustratingly for unbelievers though, it may in fact just contribute to it. As indeed Pharaoh's hardness of heart is contributing to God, bringing glory to himself and making his name known. Of course, the greatest expression of this is when people thought they'd done a great thing and killed the Lord Jesus Christ. God comes in human flesh and we've killed him. But God raised him from the dead. All killing Jesus did is expose the human condition for what it is and set the stage for God to reveal his glory and mercy by raising him from the dead. And if we look at the end of chapter 10 of Exodus, uh, verses 28 to 29, 
after the ninth plague, Pharaoh's getting worn down, but we can still see that Pharaoh still believes he is in control. I've got this. I'm in control. And because he thinks this, he says this to Pharaoh, ah, to Moses. He says, Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. See, Pharaoh here is mimicking what God will say numerous times in the books of Moses. No one can see my face and live. And Pharaoh thinks too highly of himself. Who is a man to say, if I see you again, you'll cease to exist? See, Pharaoh still thinks he has the power of life and death even over God's mediator. But Pharaoh is about to realise that he's not who he thinks he is when he sees the face of God. When he comes to face to face with the hand of the true and living God, what things truly are must be exposed at some point. The reality of this universe will be revealed and exposed at some point. You cannot fake being a God for very long. Pharaoh is about to be undone. And something we have to consider here It's one of those difficulties in the Bible is how is it said that Pharaoh says Moses should never see the face of Pharaoh again or he will die. But in chapter 11, he's in the presence of Pharaoh again and in verse 8, he leaves Pharaoh with hot anger. So this time it's Moses who's angry. So let's uh, just read that, chapter 11, verse 8. And all these these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Probably what is happening here is that chapter 11, see, the way Hebrews record history, they're not as uptight about chronology as we are. They often organise things thematically. So probably what's happening here in chapter 11 is that it's a sort of summary in preparation for the climax of chapter 12, the uh, Passover. And our modern day movie makers do this a bit. If they make a two or three part TV show, usually at some point they, of 
or that at the start of the final episode they have some way of saying so far such and such has happened and they highlight the important aspects of what's happened so far to remind you and get you ready for the climax and that's probably what's happening here in chapter 11. So we have Pharaoh thinking he's still in charge, threatening to kill Moses. And we have Moses who's hot with anger because he represents God's view on the matter that Pharaoh should have let the people go. He should have been a rational person and seen that he's not actually a God, that he's come face to face with the true and living God and that there's no way he can win this. And then, you know, unfortunately for Egypt, there's chapter 12, and the firstborn will be struck down. But of course, the great irony here is that Pharaoh will see Moses' face again because he summons him and says, get your people out of here. It will no longer be Israel crying out in slavery, but Egypt will be crying out in defeat and despair. Pharaoh will no longer be making threats against God's firstborn son because he couldn't even protect his own firstborn son. His strong hand or strong, his strong or hard heart will be broken by God's strong hand. Now perhaps a good way for us to reflect on this and these themes from a New Testament perspective is to uh, just consider the passage that Hans also read for us in Revelation 16. So you might want to flick there if you want, but just to get you up to speed a bit, the context of Revelation is that the Roman Empire is acting a lot like Pharaoh did at the time of Exodus in seeking to rule creation in opposition to God by persecuting God's people. So Caesar thought, like Pharaoh, thought himself to be Lord. In fact, there's Roman coins that have written on them, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the representation of God. And he was starting at one point to systematically persecute God's people because he didn't like it that people were going around saying, actually, Jesus is Lord. So in chapter 16 of Revelation, what we have is Exodus-type plagues being poured out from heaven on the earth. And even now, what we're to understand from this is that it's a reminder to us that this world is a world still under judgment. When we see these sorts of things happen around us, part of the explanation, not all of it, but part of the explanation is that God is judging those that oppose him. He's reminding us that we live in a world that's condemned, that's in rebellion against him. And that this can't keep going on and on indefinitely. Just as the Exodus was a battle between Pharaoh, the pretend king of creation, and Yahweh, the true king of creation, so in Revelation we have a battle between the Roman emperor 
as pretend kings of creation and Jesus as the true king of creation. So it's the basic question asked throughout the Bible, who are you going to line up behind? Where are we going to invest our hope for a restored creation, for a peaceful and ordered society? See, the environmental movement says, follow us, we can restore Eden. And in some ways they do an admirable job reminding people not to be wasteful and greedy. But they won't achieve Eden while they're opposing the rightful and true king of this world. Economists say, follow us, we'll make your life prosperous so you can rule a bigger part of creation for yourself. Sporting clubs say, follow us, rule by the victory of your team, be distracted from important questions of life. Educationalists say, follow us, rule by the power of knowledge, and so on and so on, blah, 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 blah. And when God demonstrates that he truly is the ruler of creation by sending plagues on the earth, what do people do? They still refuse to repent of their evil. And in fact, in chapter 16 of Revelation, God's people already killed by the Roman Empire sitting in heaven are saying, we praise you God for bringing justice on the earth because they killed the saints and prophets. See, this is what the world does. God comes himself in the person of Jesus and we kill him. See, Jesus alone will restore a world where God's rule is not opposed and disputed. He is God's firstborn son who died to take the judgment of death for others. So the challenge for God's people throughout history has been that the pretend kings of creation, they always look more impressive. God's ways seem weak and stupid. The pretend rulers of creation, they have all the glamour, the arrogance, the wealth, the media spin, the popularity, the sophistication. But when the true king of creation comes, he's born in poverty, he gets mocked and persecuted, never uses his unlimited power for his own ends, has a ragtag mob of 12 disciples, one of whom betrays him for a bit of cash. He dies on a cross and says, follow me. And millions of people have. And we have to keep deciding who is the true ruler of creation and who are we going to line up behind. And how are we going to be faithful to him when the pretend kings of creation start thinking too much of themselves and oppose the Lord Jesus Christ and pour their angst and hostility on his people? And one way we can engage with our culture when talking with them and challenge people is to ask them about their view of who rules creation. 
how it can be restored. We can ask questions such as if our technology and education is so good, why has it not produced good results? Why are we no better off than 3,000 years ago with the pharaohs of the world? Why do we still live with so much wickedness and self-orientation? Why are people less happy with more stuff? See, in doing this, we can point them to the true ruler of creation. The one who has demonstrated his good, his commitment to the good of humanity by dying on a cross, triumphing over our wickedness by resurrection and fully revealing the name of Yahweh. Let me uh, pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word, even though it's countercultural and unpopular. We give you thanks that you are still at work judging the world, that uh, you will not let all human rebellion uh, continue to go on forever, that even now you are active in pulling down the arrogant and lifting up the humble and those that uh, seek you and look to you. Uh, We thank you that you demonstrated this through the Exodus. Thank you that you are still demonstrating this. But we thank you for your means, that you do not do things in an arrogant, boastful way, especially as we consider uh, how you achieve your purposes through the Lord Jesus. Uh, Continue to help us to grasp uh, your revelation of yourself in your word and through your actions. Help us uh, to interpret this world rightly as we uh, understand it through your revelation. Continue to turn our hearts and allegiance towards your glorious son who alone is fit to rule humanity. Help us to continue to faithfully line up behind him. Uh, We ask and pray this in his name and for the sake of his glory. Amen.